If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 3. I don't know about you, but it feels like we have plunged into February and we missed Christmas, so I'm ready for spring. Should be coming anytime. I was up actually up in, in the northern part of Indiana in a blizzard yesterday, and it felt just like we were in the middle of winter. And so um, I think there's like 35 days till Christmas. Is that right? So be prepared, it's coming. It's coming at lightning speed. Great time of year, except for the snow. But other than that, it's a great time of year. So if you've been following our study of Acts, you know that um, this last week we took a close look at uh, the miracle of the man who uh, had been crippled from birth. Crucial to that understanding of that scene, as well as others that we're going to come across, is to understand the timing and purpose of miracles. I just want to review, review briefly what we've talked about over the past few weeks. We learned that miracles are mostly confined to three transitional ages, with a few, uh, a few miracles sprinkled throughout. They're primarily concentrated in these three ages. And the one common element of all three of those eras or those dispensations was the giving of New Testament revelation. So the purpose of miracles then was to introduce new truth. It happened in the, the Mosaic Age. It happened in the, prop, the prophetic age. And then, of course, in the New Testament when Jesus and the apostles were on the earth. And because of that, miracles then, we know by definition, are confirmatory. In other words, God used them to validate and to certify his messengers as well as their message. We've seen that over and over again as miracles were used the prophets and the apostles and even Jesus was bringing forth, they were bringing forth New Testament revelation and God used miracles to punctuate those moments. And we also learn that they're pretty rare, about 200 years total, uh, 65, 65 and around 70 years in the New Testament. So that's only 2.8% of all of redemptive history. So if, if a ministry is suggesting somehow that miracles ought to be very prevalent, it doesn't match History. They're very, really very rare. We also learn that they fit into a pattern which kind of helps confirm their purpose. God first created a miracle, and that miracle then was designed to grab attention of the audience and produce awe and wonder. That's why they're called wonders. And so they also functioned, functioned as signs, and those signs were always, uh, those miracles were signs that pointed to some significant kingdom truth. And so miracles couldn't teach anything. All they could do was to illustrate, and all they could do was to demonstrate. And so because of that, they functioned sort of as a, a powerful introduction or a sort of a springboard to then the preaching of God's word. And it was that preaching then that brought understanding that the miracle illustrated, and there was a response. So the whole process here of new revelation, the messengers and their messages, and the awe that was produced by the miracles were a process, and they fit together for a purpose of bringing God's will to light. We've also seen this pattern twice, once at Pentecost with tongues and again with the healing of the beggar. That healing now becomes the basis for Peter's second sermon. And so we're also going to see that this second sermon added 2,000 people or 2,000 converts to the church. So within a very short period of time, the church grew from 120 in that upper room 
to over 5,000 within a very short period of time. So that's an amazing movement of God. And so we left off last week with a healed beggar, totally amazed, totally praising God, leaping and shouting shouts of joy in the temple. And the crowds, of course, were completely amazed and they were awestruck. So the miracle then of the healed beggar did its job. It got attention. It gathered the group together so that they could now hear Peter's sermon. So we're going to pick up our text in verses 11 through 15. On your notes, it says 18, but I had to shorten it because we have some other things going this morning. So it's for, we're going to cover verses 11 through 15 of Acts chapter 3. I'll read it and you can follow along. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power and piety, we made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. But put to death the son, the, the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. As I noted last week, we don't want to miss the providential work of the Spirit. So I kind of want to review a little bit of what God is doing here. And even though he's not mentioned, he's behind the scenes orchestrating every single element of this text. And we see his providence in four ways. First of all, we see it in the fact that he orchestrated the exact timing of the miracle. It wasn't a coincidence that the healing took place at three o'clock in the afternoon, one of the key times that the largest groups of people were there to pray. So the Holy Spirit guided the exact timing of this. Secondly, we see a selective work by his choice of a single beggar who had to be among multitudes of those that were ill or diseased, and certainly among thousands of people that had gathered that day. It's also providential that the Spirit chose this one beggar who everyone knew from birth. So that added to the credibility of the miracle. And as I mentioned, the current modern day healers, they never have a context of which anybody really knows the person. And it was, it's never visual. It's never, it's never organic. It's never obvious. And so as we look at what happens today, it doesn't match the biblical character of miracles and plus, they're not introducing New Testament revelation. Thirdly, it was the work of God that drew Peter and John's attention to that beggar. That special day, that one moment when they had walked across his path many times before. Why that one day? Why that one particular beggar at that moment? Well, fourthly, the Holy Spirit provides a living illustration for the sermon by keeping the three together. They're all three now in the temple. And so it's like the Holy Spirit's going to use him as a living demonstration 
of the miracle of salvation. Everything's controlled here. The Holy Spirit is orchestrating every single detail. And he's doing us, doing that to show us the miracle of salvation. It shows us that God chooses who he saves, when he saves them, under what circumstances they're saved, and which believers he chooses as instruments to bring the gospel. Friends, listen. Salvation is supremely under God's sovereignty. Every single detail. We don't do anything to speed things along, and we don't do anything to make the gospel more palatable. It's not our strategies that bring people to saving faith. It's the timing and saving work of God's sovereign grace and his election and in his exact timing and his exact way. So we can relax and recognize he's in total control of those that he brings and draws to Christ. So in verse 11, Luke continues then to explain the response of the miracle. This is a, an interesting text. And while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. The miracle then created two responses. First of all, Luke tells us how the man reacted. It says that he was clinging to both men. The word kratos here is, means to seize forcefully. This guy was grabbing on to Peter and John as if their li his life depended on it. And, and we really don't know why for sure. I mean, maybe he's fearful that his, his ability to walk would go away if he, if he got away from both of them. It's possible that they just became his newest friends and, and, he, and he couldn't part from them. We don't know for sure. And it's also possible that he was frightened. Think about this is the hostile mob that killed Jesus. And he's standing there now in a portico in the temple. We don't know if he'd ever even been in there with Peter and John who were associates of Christ. So hundreds, if not thousands of people are, are, are running toward them to see what's going on. It's an amazing moment. That's the purpose of miracles. So it's doing its, its job here. After healing, they move from the gate of the, of, of called beautiful. Again, we don't know exactly what that is to the portico of Solomon. We don't really know. It's not really patterned after Solomon's temple. We really don't know much about that. But we do know this. It was a massive complex. And it was located on the east side of the temple. This kind of gives you a little picture, a rendering of what that looked like. Now, the temple was about two football fields long. And so it's ginormous. So thousands of people can be gathering at that point. And that's exactly what was going on here. Luke tells us that the crowds that gathered were full of amazement. And again, the design of the miracle is to create awe, shock and awe and to bring wonder. And that's exactly what this miracle did. I like the ESV translation because it picks up the sense of the Greek. It says they were utterly astonished. Has the word ek before, which means extra or out of. So they're extremely astonished at this. And so suddenly throngs of people then crowded in around all three. Look at verse 12. And when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? And why do you gaze at us as if by our own power and piety, we had made him walk? 
First of all, I want you to notice here that Peter addresses this crowd as men of Israel. Very important title. And it's entitled for it's important for a couple of reasons. First of all, it was the most courteous way one could address the Jewish people. And what I want you to note here is in his evangelistic effort, Peter is not the least bit brash. He's not the least bit rude. He's very conscientious. He's very courteous. He's very, very honoring. And so what we're going to see in this text is sort of a pattern of how to give the gospel. We should always remember to treat everybody with courtesy and respect. Even if it's hostile, we still want to be respectful because they're created in the image of God. I don't know about you, when I get in a heated debate, I get kind of in a heated debate. And I'm more like Peter. (laughs) Cut the ear off, right? I'm going for it, man. I've I've had to to kind of throttle it back a little bit and take a deep breath because I get very excited. And we don't want to become angry when we're dealing with people. We want to be gentle. We want to be thoughtful. We'll see here in a minute, though, what Peter does do, which is challenging for us. But it's not helpful to the cause of Christ to ever get mean-spirited or hateful. I think I mentioned it before. At Ball State, they had this evangelist that took John the Baptist's approach. And he'd stand out at the the light out in the middle of the campus when everybody was walking through changing classes. And he'd scream scream at the women and he'd tell them they were going to hell because of the way they dressed. That's not a good approach in case you're wondering. It's not helpful. That's not the issue anyway. The way people dress is not the issue. The issue is they're plain sinners. They're vile sinners before God, no matter what they have on. You never want to pick on certain sins that's the main reason people go to hell. It's because they're sinners. They are sin. So Peter began here with a very respectful tone Secondly, this title is meaningful because it reminds us that the Jews are God's chosen people. And listen, they remain his priority. The Jewish people, the nation of Israel, remain God's priority. I want you to keep in mind here that this is Peter's second sermon, and it took place when? What, where are we right now in the age uh, in terms of progression of the church? We're in the church age. Peter here gives two sermons at the beginning of the church age, and both of them are still focusing on Israel. I do not agree with covenant theology. Some of you may may know what that means. Some of you may not. It basically means that they believe that the church has replaced Israel. They won't use that term, but nevertheless, that's basically what they're saying. I do not agree That scriptures teach that the church is the new Israel. That doesn't quite fit an accurate hermeneutic of the New Testament. And one of the reasons that covenant theologians believe in covenant theology is that they believe because Jesus killed, or the Jews killed Jesus, they believe that they forfeited God's covenantal promise. But God's promise to Israel is not conditional, it's unconditional. That's important for us because what God promised Israel will be fulfilled. If it isn't fulfilled, then we can't trust God to fulfill the promises that he gives us. So there's a lot at stake here, even though people say, okay, we have different views on the way, the way things are going to go in the end. It's not quite that simple. 
So what they say then is that all of God's promises to Israel are spiritualized and applied to the church. In other words, the land promises, the Palestinian covenant, all the land, the physical promises given to Israel become reconstituted to become spiritual blessings to the New Testament church. In other words, Israel is erased. I want you to think this through with me for a minute because this text completely destroys that idea. It's clear from our text here that the Jews were responsible for putting Jesus to death. That is as clear as a bell. Verse 14, it says that they put the prince of life to death. They killed him. They were responsible for handing him over to the Romans. And so we have to ask ourselves then, did God forfeit his covenant promises that he made to them? Is God going to hold to his word on what he said to the Jews? And the, and the truth is, he doesn't abandon them. I want you to notice in chapter 3, verse 25, that can't be according to that verse. He says, it is you, speaking to the Jews, who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant with God, which your forefathers saying to Abraham, which he made to the for, your forefathers saying to Abraham, and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That covenant has not been canceled. Even though they disowned and crucified Christ, they still remain the sons of the prophets and of the covenant. You see that? That doesn't change. This is after they killed Jesus. So he doesn't cancel it. He reaffirms it. So even after Christ's death, he continues to see them as his covenant people. And I want to point out one other detail I think is important. He tells them, you are the sons of the prophets and of covenant. That's a present indicative. That means by the grammar that their condition, their position before God remains in the present after they killed Christ. His promises to Israel are irrevocable because he made the promise. And the point is this. Israel has been temporarily set aside, but not totally forsaken. Friends, you cannot read the New Testament accurately and believe that Israel has disappeared and been absorbed into the church. And if you want proof of it, read Romans 9 through 11. That's a Gentile book that Paul, that Paul puts a parenthesis in the middle of that book, reminding the Jews that they haven't been forsaken, and he's reassuring the Gentiles, don't you dare think you've replaced Israel. That's exactly what those texts say. There's been a partial hardening but someday all of Israel will be saved. Future tense. That's important as we understand that God is faithful to his promises. And he was made promises to Israel. And by the way, we wouldn't get to heaven without the Jews. We're the wild olive branch that's grafted in to the trunk of the tree, which is the patriarchs and of Christ. 
We're the ugly wild branch. We don't become the tree. And they don't get grafted into us. We get grafted into them. They are the sons of the prophets. And they are still God's covenant people. And we're blessed because God promises to bless them. Therefore, we will be blessed. Don't read Israel out of the New Testament. And I know there's great theologians that disagree. I don't care. You have to see it the way you see it. And I think a proper hermeneutic would keep Israel at the center of everything. And by the way, you know what's coming down in heaven at the very end? The new Jerusalem. It's not the new Peru or the new Indianapolis or some Gentile world. It's the new Jerusalem. Okay, I feel better now. Now, as Peter watched the crowds coming together, he was kind of troubled by a couple of things. And he asked two questions. He says, first of all, why are you amazed at this miracle, people? That's kind of a mild rebuke because as God's people, they knew God to be a miracle-working God. They had miracles all through their history. Take the, take the, uh, the parting of the Red Sea, for heaven's sakes. And they're surprised at this miracle? And by the way, they're living in an age where miracles were happening all the time with Jesus and his apostles. And so they shouldn't have been surprised at this miracle. But Peter was maybe more troubled by something else. He asked, why in the world are you gazing at us? Why are you, why are you looking at us? Why are you staring at us? And again, kind of a mild rebuke. Peter's very kind, but he's beginning to get, in, beginning to get into his sermon here. And by the way, this is the second time Peter's had to rebuke the crowds. In the first sermon, he had to refute the accusation that the tongue speakers were drunk. But he says, they're not drunk. I think he said nine o'clock in the morning or something. And now he has to refute the notion that he and John somehow are responsible for this miracle. When dealing with unbelievers, there's, a, there's typically some wrong idea that they have. Mis misconception, wrong ideas about God. And friends, correcting that and being able to correct them gently and lead them from that error to the truth is a responsibility that we all share. You see, you have a responsibility like I do. When we hear error, we need to correct that. And by the way, ignoring that isn't going to make the gospel any more powerful. There's always confusion. There's always misunderstanding. And we can't let those errors go. We need to deal with those things. Sometimes I think we rush to the Romans road or whatever, but I think we need to deal with those things. Peter does here. So a key element then of our witness involves the ability to refute error. It has to, it's a qualification of an elder. That should be something that you become more skilled at over time. This body is taught well enough that now we can deal with the tongues issue. We can deal with the miracles. We can deal with a number of subjects that are hot topics today. You ought to be able to walk somebody through, take your notes and show them what the truth is. And so what Peter and John here did really is amazing. It's really shocking. You go, well, why is it shocking? Do you see how their lives have changed? This is Peter. Oh, remember the little slave girl? I don't know Jesus. And now he's standing up 
to the enemies that put Jesus to death, and he's addressing them. Also, you remember the whole time during their training, what were they doing? Well, I'm greater than you are. No, you're greater than, you're, you're not as great as I am, but I'm greater than he is. So from the beginning to the end of their ministry, they're constantly arguing over who is the greatest. I want you to notice, you don't see that here. Because of the power of the Holy Spirit that's come in their lives, we don't see them arguing over who's the greatest. And now we see in an unsolicited way an amazing spiritual growth. And that spiritual growth is that he and John here are refusing to take credit for the miracle. And they could have very easily. Yeah, it was us. They wanted to build their ministry in a pragmatic way. Yeah, this is us. This was the time to promote sensationalism. This was the time that they could have in their ministry said, hey, we can do miracles. They don't. They refuse to take credit for it. Friends, this is such an important lesson for all of us, and we learned from Peter and John that we should always resist taking credit for our spiritual accomplishments. Now, I think if we're honest, if we're truly honest, really honest, and nobody was listening, we'd say, I kind of enjoy the praise of others. I enjoy being recognized. We have a secret desire to want the applause of man, don't we? I think it's just built into us that we want to be recognized. And I think this is especially true with those who hold positions of leadership. That's why I was so uncomfortable, although I so appreciate the 25th anniversary. I, and some parts of me was like, ah, I don't want to do that. Man should not be made much of. There's appropriate honor there for those in leadership. I get that, and I understand that. But what we see here is in Peter and John is an unsolicited, outright refusal to take credit for only what God could do. It's an amazing difference. If this would have happened before the Holy Spirit came, what would they have been doing? Peter would have said, well, I'm the one really that produced the miracle, and John was just here. John would have said in his loving little sweet voice, well, I think I probably had most to do with that. We don't see that here. By, by the way, the modern day miracle workers that become the center of attention and, they, and their desire is to be known, made, made known and famous. Again, it's completely contrary to the sensational works in the New Testament. The apostles never made themselves the center of their ministry by miracles. It's not biblical. Doesn't match with the New Testament. Always take everything and match it to the New Testament. If you can't line it up with the New Testament, then don't buy into it. This is our standard. This is what we go by. This is what we trust in. This is our anchor for discerning all the junk that's out there. Follow the scriptures, my friends. Stay anchored in the text and you won't get deceived. So we should take the same attitude that when we accomplish anything spiritually good, it's because God is accomplishing his will through us, right? It's because he's working in us both to will and to do according to his purpose. Anything good ultimately is because of what Christ is doing in us. Oh, how we need to really cultivate an attitude of humility. Sometimes 
God's word comes at us like powerful arrows that drive deep into our hearts. And I, I remember sitting at a shepherd's conference. Maybe this was two years ago. I've been there a lot of years. I'm still trying. I still don't, still don't quite get it. I'm still trying to learn. So I haven't been there in a while, or I haven't, I've been there a lot, actually. And so, but this one particular statement was made, and maybe this happens to you during sermons. It was like an arrow that shot through my heart, and they were teaching about John the Baptist. And they just repeated the verse. They said, he must increase, but I must decrease. This was at a shepherd's conference. And so that struck me. The pastors, if they don't, aren't intentional, they're going to put themselves above Christ. And it's our responsibility. It's your responsibility. It's all of our responsibilities to make sure that Christ is always exalted above us. Right? You awake out there? Yes. We're all prideful. And we all want to be recognized. How many times, again, transparently, you're sitting around and somebody's making some sort of comment about something great that's happened. And you're just secretly waiting. Mention my name. Mention my name. Wait a minute. You mentioned those names and not mine? What's your reaction? <sighs> happened to me recently. And I'm like, it's okay. I don't, need to be, I don't need to be noticed. I don't need to be stated. So many pastors have shipwrecked their ministries because of their self-inflated pride. It's happened. We would be wise to heed the warning that James gives in 4.6 where it says, God is opposed to who? <sighs> it wasn't a very positive... God is opposed to who? The proud. And he gives grace to who? Humble. Can you say that louder? Humble. Can you be humble? Say it louder. If we want God's grace, then make it your goal to cultivate a demeanor of humility. And it doesn't matter if you're not recognized. If you're, by the way, if you're doing it to be recognized, you're going to burn out. You're going to get angry. You're going to think it's not worth it. It was said that Leonardo da Vinci had finished his painting. When he, fit, when he had finished the, the painting, it was the Last Supper. He invited a trusted friend to inspect his work and give feedback. So the trusted friend came over and he said, it's exquisite. He said, it's fantastic. He says, I love the way the wine cup stands out from the table. It kind of appears as though it's a, a solid glittering silver. It's beautiful. And Leonardo was horrified. He immediately took a brush and began to blot out the cup. And his friend asked, why are you doing that? He says, it was my intention that it be Christ that attracts the observer's eye. And so, so he intentionally blotted out everything around that thing except Jesus and started over. We should be intentional to blot out everything in our lives that takes God's glory away. Recognize, friends, your deep-seated desire for that and deal with it. And deal with it. The words of Paul should be emblazoned across our hearts and minds. He says, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider what? Anything as coming from ourselves. But our adequacy is from God. How many of us can say that? I'm not adequate at all in myself. 
He says something similar in 1 Corinthians 15.10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I'll have, for those of you that are over 50, I pulled up Popeye. And I was going to put that on. I'm probably stupid. He goes, I am what I am, and that's all that I am. Do you remember? I'm Popeye the sailor man. Now, there's a truth for you. The rest of you are going, what? I was going to do it for Caleb because he has no idea who Popeye is. But he's not here. But, but he says, but I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. What does he mean? I labored even more than all of them. Paul worked hard, and yet not I, but the grace of God in me. Paul couldn't tell. He says, I'm I'm laboring, but I know my laboring has everything to do with Christ empowering me and giving me the will and the desire and the ability to carry out his plan. Friends, we bring nothing to the table except sin, and he takes care of that. The Holy Spirit comes in our lives and begins to change us and transform us. We have to labor, but our laboring is always evidence of God's grace. Revelation 4.10 implies that once we reach heaven, we're going to take our crowns and do what? We're going to cast them before the throne. You know what that means? That means every reward we get, and we'll get rewards if we're believers, We're going to give it back to him in recognition that this is really yours. This crown, this reward, this victory, this accomplishment is yours, not mine. So Peter and John here have grown. They got the Holy Spirit. They're grown. They don't dare take credit for it. And so they're an example then of the way we should be. They wanted no one to think that they were the source of the miracle. So who was responsible? Now, Peter's getting into his sermon here. I want you to notice he quickly says in verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. Peter is very quick to deflect any credit. And he says the miracle has everything to do with God. God, Theos here, is mentioned eight times in this text. That's the center of this passage. That's the thrust of this whole thing. It's about Jesus. The man was healed in the name of Jesus, and Peter preaches here in the name of Jesus. And he begins the main body of his sermon with a title, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We learn in our evangelistic training that we always start with God. And who he is. And by using this title, Peter does two things. First of all, he begins to build common ground. Notice he says that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God of our fathers. Peter wants them to know that they share the same God. His God is their God. So he's building some commonality here of belief. Secondly, When doing this, he stresses the continuity of his message with the Old Testament prophets. He wants them to know that they share the same God and that his message is the same message as the prophets. There's one continuous message from Old Testament to New. We don't have an Old and a New Testament. We have a Testament. And they both have to go together. And the title he chose here was extremely familiar to the Jews, so he's building some familiarity that way. It appears about a dozen times in very significant occasions. 
Again, we're looking at the title, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as used in Exodus 3.6, when God introduced himself to Moses at the burning bush. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he used it again in Genesis 50.24, when Joseph told his brothers that it was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who made the oath to give Israel the promised land. And in 1 Kings 18.36, Elijah called on the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to cause fire to come down and consume the sacrifice. By the way, that's another example where God used a miracle to confirm his messenger as well as his message. It's exactly what he did there. Peter here is is an incredibly skilled preacher. And I want you to notice how carefully he unfolds this. After confirming Israel's God, he then tells them that it was their God who glorified his servant, Jesus. Now watch what he's doing here. He's beginning to build a bridge with the God that they know, with the Jesus they rejected. Very skilled. And he did this by talking about his exaltation. And he already told them that in his first sermon. He said, this Jesus raised up to which we are all witnesses, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he had poured forth which you both see and hear. So this is masterful here. Peter first reassures the crowds that they have the same God of the Old Testament, And then he tells them that it was their God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who raised the servant, Jesus, up from the dead. See what he's doing? It's brilliant. He's building a bridge back to the prophets that they trusted. Now, why did the Holy Spirit lead Peter to choose the word servant? I want you to notice the pronoun his servant, that's God's servant. And the reason is that the term servant, pais, it's not the typical word doulos for a, a, a slave. This is pais. And he's using this word servant, and it's a thread that ties Jesus to Isaiah's messianic prophecies in chapters 42 through 53. Servant is a key term that's going to connect the prophets of the old with Jesus. Isaiah 41 or 42, 1, he says, Behold, my servant, whom you uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. And then he speaks of him again in Isaiah 52, 13. He says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. This speaks, by the way, using the term servant, representing Jesus, speaks of the success of the atonement. He was high and lifted up and exalted. That's the, that's the ascension and session of Christ. And it speaks of the fact that his death would be successful and he'd be vindicated by being raised and exalted to the right hand of the Father. Isaiah here is speaking of Jesus, and Peter is demanding that they see this, and they see this connection. Most of us are familiar with Isaiah 53, the great messianic 
chapter. He says, as a result of the anguish of his soul, that's his death, he will see it and be satisfied. See what and be satisfied? His death. His death is going to create good. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, Pais, it's a Greek word, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Notice God is not going to justify everybody. The many. And he's going to bear their iniquities. So these passages then depict Jesus as God's servant and Messiah. The one who would be obedient to death. And that he would be despised and rejected of men. That he'd be man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he'd be wounded for our transgressions. And that he would suffer for the sheep who all went astray and went on their, way, their, way, uh, their own way. Peter's point here again is that Jesus Christ is the servant of their God. The same one the Old Testament prophets predicted. It's amazing. And the only thing that I can understand is a judicial blinding. How the Jews can't possibly see Jesus Christ in Isaiah. It's amazing. It's so clear. But they don't. They're still waiting for him to come. And he's come. And if they wait till he comes back, it's going to be too late for so many. For further evidence that Jesus claimed to be the servant, the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, he says it himself in Matthew 12, 15 through 21. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. They were trying to kill him. And many followed him, and he healed them all and warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what the spoken, what was spoken through the prophet, through the through Isaiah the prophet. Behold, and he quotes Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. Behold, my what? My servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, and whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. So Peter, in his masterful sermon, started out very kind, started building some common ground with the God. And he says, now the God that you trusted is the same God that raised Jesus, the servant whom you killed. So he connects that. Now he begins to get to the heated part of his sermon. And he tells them that that same Jesus that they exalted is the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate, whom he had decided to release. The first indictment here is that they handed Jesus over to be crucified, even though Pilate found him innocent. They didn't matter to them. Indictment number two is stated in verse 14. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Furthermore, they made the choice to release, um, to release Barabbas, who was a criminal, and not release Jesus, who was innocent. So what he's saying here is that you chose evil over righteousness. And indictment number three is found in verse 15 very clearly says, you put to death the prince of life. You killed Jesus, the author of life. 
Well, that's as far as we're going to go this morning because we have a couple of things in the budget proposal. So what's our takeaway from this? What, what does the Holy Spirit want us to see in this? What should change our life? What should change the way we give the gospel? Well, there are a couple of truths, but for the sake of time, I only want to focus on one. And it's something that we've heard before, but again, it's worth repeating, and that's this. When giving the gospel, we must be courteous and kind. But we also have to be bold, courageous, and straightforward in addressing sin. This is not comfortable. This is not easy. We live in a very, very soft age. I saw two deer killed yesterday, and I was kind of sad. I was really sad. And I know animals are for eating. I I get all that. God gave us animals. But I think we've gotten soft all the way around. I just figured food came from Kroger packaged. I didn't know anything was killed. I didn't know you have to actually kill something. That's brutal. (laughs) I'm not against hunting, by the way. I'm trying to get there with it. But I want you to notice that Peter's first two sermons establish an example and pattern for us giving the gospel. In his first sermon, Peter was very direct, and he was very to the point, and he indicted them for handing Jesus over to be put to death. He was very, very clear. These are not seeker-sensitive sermons. You will be very hard-pressed to find a positive prophet that was soft and tender They're forthright. And now he tells them again that they've rejected God's servant. And again, he says that he's put, that they put him to death. Friends, I know, listen, I know our tendency is to shrink back from addressing sin. And I know because of the culture that we live in, I know because of the, the accusations of being judgmental and, and not being, um, loving. I, I know all that. That is design. Now listen. I believe that's a satanic design to get us to withdraw from giving the gospel the way it's supposed to be given. Some of you have very tender personalities. You're going to have to, you're going to, have to ramp it up. Some of you have Peter personalities where you're going to cut the head off. You've got to back off just a little bit. But the point is here is that Peter reminds us that we cannot withdraw and cannot soften the idea of sin. And many avoid it. I know why they avoid it, because it's satanic. They avoid it because they don't want to offend. And they want to make the gospel more attractive. So I want to pose a question to you if you're thinking that way. Can you think of one evangelistic text where the evangelist was concerned about offending his audience. If you find one, let me know. They're not concerned with that. And they're loving just like Jesus was when he talked to the Pharisees and he called them hypocrites and whitewashed tombstones. Friends, let me remind you, that's perfect love. That's perfect love because the sin has to be exposed. And we can't soften that. If we do, we run dangerously close to preaching another gospel. 
But Peter is our example. Yes, we must be kind. And yes, we must be honoring to people. But at the same time, we have to, we have to trust that addressing sin is absolutely necessary. And it's what God wants us to do. It even sounds brutal by today's standards. But let's get back into the text. How did they do it? And why did they do it the way they did it? They're our example, like with everything else. We cannot ignore the disease because if we do, they'll see no reason for the treatment. We have to give the gospel. And that means the uncomfortable reality of addressing sin. People have to come to grips with the understanding. Listen, that they're vile sinners before a holy God and they have no hope apart from Christ. No hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your truth. Lord, help our hearts to catch on fire with humility and with love. God, make us into the strong, bold, courageous people, just like you made Peter into the man that he was. Help us to recognize, God, that the most loving thing we can do is to get people to recognize that they fall short of your glory. And the only hope they have is to lay themselves at the feet of Christ, that he would save them. Help us, God, to be all that we are supposed to be. Velvet steel. Help us to be faithful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.